Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. In the last two years, three significant new biographies of Adolf Hitler have appeared. Our guest today, Brendan Sims, has written one of them, titled Significantly Hitler, a Global Biography. Brendan is professor in the History of International Relations in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge, and he's the author of several books in European and British history. Sims's biography presents a Hitler obsessed with the Anglo-American world, both as a model and as a challenge and as a threat. And he's also interested um, in recognizing the importance for Hitler of the idea of international capitalism uh, and the way in which uh, Jews and international capitalism are intertwined. It's an absorbing new biography, one that offers both new interpretations and new details. And I'm looking forward to what should be a fascinating discussion. So with that, Brendan, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much for having me. So, Brendan, let me start by asking what might be a simple question. Why a biography of Hitler? Why did you think this was the right time? Well, I think that the aspects of Hitler's life, which you've alluded to, the centrality of Anglo-America, um, simply haven't been recognized. So... Maybe you could sketch out for us something, and you do this in the book, um, very briefly, what, what have previous authors of, of biographies, what's the historiography of, of, the hist- of, of biographies of Hitler? Well, if we focus uh, just on the major uh, biographies, it really begins in the 50s with Alan Bullock, uh, and his focus is very much on Hitler. Uh, in the context of the immediate post-war, in the context of totalitarianism, uh, but also in the context of a man who is a kind of uh, somebody who doesn't really have a, have a, a coherent world view. Um, then you've got, in the case of Joachim Fest, uh, in the uh, early uh, 1970s, a, a literary, very mature uh, biography, but one which is really focused on understanding Hitler within his German context, the, the question being, which is still a very good question, is how could such a sophisticated and um, uh, wealthy country like uh, Germany, at least wealthy in the uh, general context, not wealthy compared to Anglo-America, of course, how could it uh, succumb to, to Adolf Hitler and Nazism? And then you had in the uh, 1980s, uh, a lot of uh, focus on, uh, and also in the 1970s, on the so-called structural view of the Third Reich, saying that it's really not just about his intention, uh, but rather about the other competing forces uh, within the Third Reich. And that led then really to Ian Kershaw's famous yeah. uh, monumental two-volume uh, biography, which appeared uh, between 1998 and 2000, which was really written from the point of view of locating Hitler within that new literature and within German society. And then more recently, you've got um, uh, Volker Ulrich, who's focusing Mm -hmm. 
to a considerable extent on the more psychological aspect, Hitler's personality, which perhaps had been uh, under-illuminated hitherto. Um, You have uh, Peter Longerich, who is very much also a historian of of, uh, Nazi bureaucracy, of of individual uh, Nazis, somebody who again uh, was locating Hitler fundamentally within German history, a kind of updated Kershaw in many many respects. Uh, And then you have Wolfram Puter, who has written uh, a book which is not exactly a biography, uh, but is looking at Hitler as as an artist, but also uh, as a military strategist, and if you like, the link between the military uh, and the artistic, uh, and and has really explored the concept of of genius. And all these books, I should say, um, are extremely valuable. Um, But my argument is that uh, because we haven't had Hitler in the context of his, what I would argue is really his principal obsession, which is Anglo-American and international capitalism. Um, that, I think, is a dimension uh, which needs to be added in and, and fundamentally changes our view of Hitler. So maybe let's start there. Why, why is he so obsessed with the Anglo-American world and, and, and the challenge that it poses? Well, that, that's actually quite easy to explain because, of course, as is well known, the formative experience for him uh, is not so much Vienna that's been uh, debunked, uh, but rather the First World War itself. And anybody who's fought on the principal battlefront of the First World War, uh, which is, um, of course, the Western Front, uh, will most likely have encountered uh, the British or Commonwealth or the Empire armies. Uh, And towards the end, of course, the United States. Uh, And Hitler fights virtually the entire war against the British uh, and laterally against the Americans. And this has a profound impact on him because he realizes immediately uh, that this is a power of a superior type. Uh, which, of course, crushes the German Reich in battle. And secondly, you have the experience of the German home front, which is starved in the, by the blockade, which, of course, is imposed uh, by the Royal Navy. And then in the aftermath of the First World War, you've got the Versailles Settlement, where, again, you leave aside the French for a minute, the dominant uh, powers are the Anglo-Americans. And, of course, the world of the 1920s is dominated, certainly by the United States, but also by the by the British Empire. So for anybody who was there at the time, the notion that the British and the Americans uh, and international capitalism ran everything wouldn't have seemed strange. So that's a pretty typical great power. Um, I don't know if the explanation is right, but that's a, that that's a, as you've described it, that's a power dynamic, not a racial dynamic. Does Hitler have a, a, a national or a racial sense of, of the Anglo-American world as opponents or models, or how does that work? Well, he does very much. And of course, it it drives then his his vision, his view of the power political dynamic. So uh, he comes to believe, and I uh, demonstrate this with copious uh, quotations and also using some new evidence uh, coming out of his experience of the First World War, that Hitler believed that Germany's main problem was its failure to feed uh, its population, which of course is well known, um, and that therefore that led to emigration, which is not an aspect uh, which was really discussed at all in relation to Hitler and certainly not by his biographers. And that uh, huge emigration, we're talking about millions of people who leave the German Reich, particularly in the course of the 19th century, they then go and fertilize, this is the exact word he uses, they fertilize other countries, particularly the British Empire, but most especially the United States. 
And so what happens is that in his view, the best German elements, and he's very explicit about this, the best German elements, those with the most initiative and get-go, leave the Reich and they go and they uh, reinforce or fertilize partly the British Empire, but many the United States. And if you add to that the fact that in Hitler's view, the original and principal racial spine of uh, Britain and the United States is Anglo-Saxon, so the phrase Angelsächsisch is, is quite central. Mm. Then you have uh, the feeling on his side that really all the best, and I'm, I, I stress here, these, these um, phrases should be in inverted commas. I'm, I'm channeling Hitler here, mm-hmm. not views, mm-hmm. uh, to be absolutely explicit. Um, uh, but that he feels that these, um, uh, uh, that these best elements um, are, are present doubly in, in Anglo-America. So they both have their own uh, native Anglo-Saxon elements, if you like, and also the best elements from Germany, which are then, and this is very important, anglicized, is a phrase he uses, anglisieren, and he, he, he is both admiring and despairing of this because he says that, you know, really the, what the Americans can do is that they can turn Germans into Americans. And why does this matter? Well, it matters, first of all, because uh, it's what's well, kind of a double whammy. Uh, the German Reich loses its best elements and potential enemy gains these elements. And this proves to be a problem, he says, when in the First World War, these exported Germans <clears throat> returned to fight the German Reich uh, in battle. And so uh, the sort of classic case in point for him is an encounter he has with uh, American prisoners in July of 1918 during the Second Battle of the Marne. Uh, and we know that took place because um, I actually found uh, documents in the um, Bavarian War Archive, which showed that uh, to be so. Um, but what's even more important is the way in which he interpreted that event later in the 1920s, where he says, <clears throat> I encountered German emigrants uh, on the battlefields of France. And that for him is then the argument that we need to have a new regime in Germany, which will secure living space in the East um, uh, in order to export that excess population. And the rest, is, I think, is more familiar. So, so where does this idea of international capitalism as an ideology and as a practice and as a, perhaps as a racialized practice, where, how does that fit in? Right. So this is a, a very important parallel and reinforcing and interacting strand of his thinking. So he, he argues that uh, the world is dominated by international capitalism. And I stress the phrase international here. Um, Sometimes it's, uh, Hitler makes it sound as if he's against capitalism as such, and mm. there certainly are times where, where he appears to be uh, so. But he also has a soft spot for what he calls national capitalism, by which he means enterprises like Krupp's and others, which are, are firmly located within the German Reich. But uh, so his invective and his, his anxiety is to do with international capitalism, by which he means uh, large corporations, but particularly also finance capital, as he calls it. And later, uh, he refers to the plutocratic powers and, and so on. But it's always the same thing. And he says that this international capitalism is mainly Jewish, but not exclusively Jewish. Mm. Um, and he associates international capitalism with the power of the Jews. So he refers to people like the Rothschilds. Um, they would be a typical uh, case. Um, and it's his belief uh, that international capitalism runs the world, and that in particular, 
international capitalism regards national capitalism or national economies, to be more precise, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, jealousy. And therefore, uh, what the German Reich before 1914 constituted uh, for international capitalism was a rival. And what do you do with a rival? Well, according to Hitler, you isolate it diplomatically. And so that's how he explains uh, the countdown to 1914. Uh, you go to war with it, but you also um, inflict subversive and disintegrative elements on it. Mm. So hence, for example, uh, the support of international capitalism for trade unions or socialism or even communism within the German Reich, because mm. these are, are sort of whips and scorpions in Hitler's view, which are used to break up uh, national economies and make them subject to international capitalism. One of the, uh, well, let's back up. Um, how and when did Hitler become anti-Semitic? Well, that, of course, is is the $64 million <laughs> dollar question. Yep. Um, and uh, there was a time when it was very plausibly linked back to his time in Vienna when he encountered uh, many Jews. Um, but in fact, over the last 25 years or so, that view has been increasingly discredited. There was a very good book by uh, a lady called Brigitte Hamann on Hitler's Vienna, which showed that in fact, uh, he had had quite friendly relations with Jews uh, in Vienna. And there's no evidence of any anti-Semitic statement by Hitler, even during the First World War. So everything that we, we think we know about Hitler's view on Jews prior to 1919 uh, is something that was either said subsequently by Hitler, for example, in Mein Kampf, which is totally misleading in this regard, mm -hmm. uh, or by somebody else about Hitler. The, the, the only concrete evidence that we have for anti-Semitic views comes from 1919, and here, and this links back to the anti-capitalism point I was making earlier, it's absolutely clear on both occasions, the references in the first instance, it's somebody who witnesses a speech given by Hitler, and it's a speech on capitalism. And the listener said, we don't have the text of that speech, we simply have what the listener said. And the listener says that he uh, touched on, uh, when he was talking about capitalism, Hitler touched on, quote, indeed, he had to touch on the Jewish question. So it's very clear that the link there between um, capitalism, anti-capitalism and anti-Semitism uh, is there in Hitler's mind, also in the mind of the listener. Secondly, of course, most famously in the notorious Gemmelich letter from September 1919, when he's replying to uh, somebody who's written to him from Ulm, who said, why should we be anti-Semitic? And Hitler lists the various reasons why one should be anti-Semitic. Among these reasons, and this is now nearly two years after the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, uh, Hitler does not mention communism, mm. but he does extensively mention, among other things, but very prominently, uh, anti-capitalism. So Hitler is an anti-capitalist and an anti-Semite before he's really preoccupied with the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm. So the root of his anti-Semitism is to do with his anti-capitalism particularly his anti-international capitalism, that, that I should stress. Mm -hmm. And I don't, by the way, just to be absolutely clear, mean to suggest, therefore, that socialism or socialists are inherently anti-Semitic. Yeah. Uh, that can be the case for some, more than you might think. Uh, but obviously, I'm not saying that people like Willy Brandt or mm -hmm. uh, others are anti-Semitic. Uh, that would be absurd. So, 
so one of the things I found fascinating in your book is is the question of time. And you talk about how time speeds up and slows down for Hitler. Yeah. Can, can you talk about that? Yes. So it's very clear from Hitler's own writings and rhetoric. Um, and I don't think it's just eyewash for him. I think he is moving between different conceptions of, of uh, the timeline for the realization of his plans. Uh, it's well known that um, in the early 1920s, he regarded himself as uh, not so much as the Messiah, but as what he calls the drummer, a kind of a John the Baptist mm -hmm. figure. And that at some point, probably rather earlier than most people uh, had thought, um, he came to think of himself actually as the Messiah. So there's that element, first of all, that, that right at the beginning, it's not actually clear whether he is the man who's going to affect the change. But then, depending on the situation, um, it's not at all clear whether he, some, or rather, it's, it's, it's clear in some cases that he thinks that his, his goal is actually quite far off, and sometimes he thinks the goal is, is quite close. So to give you some examples, um, there's a sort of escalating expectation on his part in 1922, 1923, that salvation is actually quite close. And that's what leads him then into his, his, his mistaken or, or misjudged mm -hmm. move mm -hmm. in the famous um, failed putsch of uh, November 1923. Then, of course, he ends up in prison and he's released and he has to rebuild the party. And at that point in the late 1920s, um, he actually is thinking in much more long term perspective. Then time shortens again in 1931, 32, and he takes over power. But even then, uh, despite the fact he's he's looking on the one hand uh, to move quite quickly on the military front, as he tells the uh, the military leaders in, in February 1933, at the same time, he's talking about the transformation of the German people as a very long-term project, and the completion of which he himself will not witness. He, he says sometimes that, you know, I'm simply going to move the marker a little bit further along. And if you think of his project as a project in the end designed either to confront or at least to balance Anglo-America, then hmm. this is very understandable because his theory of the rise of the United States and particularly the British Empire is that they have developed what he regards as their superior qualities over hundreds of years of conflicts and what he calls racial development. And the Germans have failed to do that for various reasons. And so, of course, to put the Germans in the position that the British are, in theory, he's going to need um, hundreds of years to do it. Um, and so you then end up with a rather longer timeline. Um, so time expands and contracts, this is the point, depending on the context. And I'm, I'm struck in your biography, by how much time you spend talking about ways he tries to, I guess the word would be elevate the German people, and you talk about architecture, and you talk about music, and you talk about a, a variety of different things that are often not treated in biographies of Hitler. So, so maybe you could say, about how how does he try and and move time along within the Reich? Mm -hmm. Well, he has a very holistic view of what he calls racial development, uh, elevation, as you say, so Hebung is the phrase in German, uh, which in itself shows that, that his view of the German people, even without the so-called undesirable elements, uh, like Jews or the disabled or whatever, um, even the baseline of the German people 
um, he is he regards as fundamentally problematic. So the German people he wants and the German people uh, uh, he would like to have is two very different things. And he makes a distinction, which is very important and is not always understood between the German people and the Nordic race. So he regards the German people as made up of many different racial strands. He says this on a number of occasions, uh, uh, particularly in secret speeches, um, of which the Nordic race, so-called, is only one. And in fact, he thinks that other racial strands, which can include Slavs, but also Alpine or others, uh, may have more artistic uh, sentiments. Mm. So what you would want to try to do would be to, to, to increase the Nordic element from the point of view of your position in the world, but not completely uh, neglect the other aspects. Now, how do you then improve, in inverted commas, your race? Well, you can do this on several fronts, but uh, there are really two key aspects. One is to uh, eliminate the, the so-called negative elements, so that's the, the negative eugenics, um, and that, of course, is, is very well known. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have the so-called positive eugenics. These are terms in, from eugenic studies, as it were, um, and that involves developing the more positive strands uh, within the race. And you do that, first of all, by raising the standard of living. So he says <clears throat> a big problem in, in, in Germany is that a lot of people are actually quite poor. Um, they're easily attracted by the um, bright lights of America, so they might emigrate. But even if they don't, if they're poor, they're ignorant, uh, then they will be of low, low racial quality. So raising the living standards is a huge part of racial development, as he sees it. But secondly, you want to ennoble and develop the mind and the culture. And that's where what you referred to with architecture and with uh, music um, comes in, that he regards the appreciation of music um, as part of this sort of sifting, racial sifting. If you appreciate good music, uh, in his view, then you're developing your best racial characteristics. So I know your time is short, but I can't let you go without asking you then the obvious next question, which is, why the Holocaust? In Hitler's mind, and this won't be news uh, to anybody, the war mm -hmm. against the Jews is a war which is waged globally, is part of the overall struggle, in his view, for the survival of the German Reich. And so he sees the Jewish threat as a threat to the uh, coherence of the German, of the Nordic race, which we've mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. He sees Jews as internally subversive, so supportive of fragmentary tendencies within Germany, like Communist Party, like liberalism, like democracy, um, and essentially also as agents uh, of the outside enemy, particularly of international capitalism. Uh, and finally, he sees the opposing powers, particularly Anglo-America, and later, of course, uh, the Soviet Union, as being directed by the forces of international Jewry. And so he sees German Jews and later uh, European Jews as hostages in his hands for what he calls the good behavior of the British and the Americans. So that in effect, once the United States has gone to war, uh, with, or he's gone to war, actually declared war in the United States, uh, on the 11th of December, 1941, then the final gloves come off. So obviously there have been large-scale murders in the Soviet Union prior, but that was in the context of Operation uh, Barbarossa. Uh, but the, the murder 
of the Western uh, European Jews is conceived very clearly as a blow against uh, against the United States. Uh, and we know this because uh, he warns uh, in inverted commas in January 1939 that he will plunge that if uh, in inverted commas again world Jewry succeeds in plunging Europe into war again, then the price will be paid by the Jews. And then afterwards, then on the 12th of December, uh, he tells the Golaisha, and we know this because uh, Goebbels writes it in his diary, he says, well, now the world war is here uh, and the Jews must pay the price. So the link between that sort of global conflict against uh, uh, Anglo-America, particularly the United States, and the murder of the Jews is very direct. So then my last question, um, given what you've uncovered in this book, what, what does this book lead you to rethink or, or maybe to explore further in the broader history of the Nazi period or, or Germany in this period? What, what should we ask now, now that we have your book? Well, I think some of the questions that would one, ask, one might ask more broadly are in fact already being asked. Mm. So what's interesting is that in terms of Hitler biographies, what I've just said uh, um, and we just talked about hasn't really featured, mm-hmm. uh, uh, with the exception perhaps of, of of what I've been saying about the Holocaust here, but all those race, the you know Anglo-Saxons and emigration that hasn't featured. Actually, the idea that the United States is a central reference point for the Third Reich as a whole is quite well established. So I, I would refer here particularly to Adam Tuzer's. Uh, mm-hmm on the German war economy, for example, mm-hmm. which shows that very, very clearly, uh, that they regard the principal adversary in terms of production as the United States. Um, and of course, the work of Philip Gassert mm-hmm. uh, and others has shown uh, the salience of the United States uh, in terms of cultural conflict. Um, so uh, I think actually quite a lot of these questions uh, are already being posed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I think the idea that um, the Third Reich's main preoccupation was the contest at every level, cultural, economic, and military, with the West rather than primarily with the East. I think that is probably um, increasingly finding acceptance. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a fascinating book. Uh, I learned a lot, and I encourage people to reach out and, 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 and read it and engage with it and think about it. Brendan, I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for being with us in New Books and Genocide Studies. And I hope uh, sometime down the road we'll have a chance to have you on the show again. Thank you very much indeed for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.